Oliver North and the White House, they're not always these sort of masterminds seeing everything in advance. Sometimes they just sort of stumbled into new and exciting ways of breaking the law. If you remember from the last episode, there's that ill-fated shipment of Hawk missiles to Iran. These missiles that weren't as advertised, at least say the Iranians. And plus, each one had like, you know, an Israeli star of David and all this Hebrew on the side of it. And the Iranians are just pissed. It's, the whole deal is a, is a total bust. But in the wake of all of this, North and Secord realized that there's $800,000 left over from the initial million dollar deposit by the Israelis into the Enterprise Bank account. And they're like, huh, we could, yeah, we, yeah, we could take, this is ours now. And they just take it. And that's how the so-called diversion begins. Skimming profits secretly off these Iranian arms sales and diverting the profits to the Contras. And then keeping a little money on the side. And by a little money, I mean a lot of money on the side for just whatever might come up. A, a, a sort of a rainy day fund for, for coups and, and right-wing guerrillas. And then, just weeks after this, after North and Secord find this money laying around, North learns that the Iranians are willing to pay $10,000 a piece for tow missiles. And North goes to the Iranians and is like, oh, that's funny because that's exactly how much they cost us, even, even Stephen. Let's shake on that. Tow missiles don't cost North and Secord anything like $10,000. They are ripping the Iranians the fuck off. Which is not a great way to act if your stated goal is to save the lives of hostages. That's why they're supposed to be doing this. But just like that, North and Secord's International House of Missiles is, is open for business. And everything is on the up and up. Totally above board. You can tell it's totally above board because of how not evasive it is. Here's how a deal goes down. So... A Saudi businessman loans Oliver North's Iranian connection, this guy Gorbanifar, he loans him the money for the missiles, which is deposited into the enterprise's secret Swiss bank account, controlled by Secord, who transfers the cost of the missiles they'd secretly worked out with the Defense Department. He transfers that payment to a CIA account, and then the CIA buys the missiles from the Department of Defense. Then Secord gets a CIA contractor to fly the missiles to Israel, they take the missiles off the plane in Israel, put them onto other planes, and fly them that last leg to Iran. That's what they have to do. And that's just a simplified version. That's what they have to do to not get caught. Now, of course, North and Secord aren't paying $10,000 for these missiles. They'd haggled the Department of Defense down to 3700 That is a substantial profit. That's like... 250% profit. And that first attempt at, at what ends up being called diversion is a success. Well, it, well, it's a success in making money for the enterprise. They sell 500 tows in tow missiles in February 1985, and then 500 more a week later, 1,000 tows. But where are the hostages, though? Iran either can't or just doesn't do the thing that this is ostensibly supposed to be what it's all about. Getting American hostages back. They totally strike out again. So then North and a small delegation, they travel secretly to Iran 
under the assumption that all the hostages in Lebanon are going to be released within three days of their arrival in Iran. And nothing. They come home empty-handed. But a month after that failure, one hostage is released. The second hostage after all of these missiles and, and endless talks. So they get one hostage now. But, but this Iran initiative, this, this whole thing with Iran never works very well for very long. And it's right around this time that the Iranians, ooh, they get a hold of a Department of Defense pricing list for some of the missiles and parts they'd been buying. And, and the Iranians realize that they've been paying as much as six times the price in these transactions. And then before long, two more hostages are taken in Lebanon making it now two hostages returned and now two more taken. And then within two months of this, the whole affair was leaked to the public. It's a total disaster. And now it's over. The Iranians had paid way too much for unsatisfactory weapons. And now there are more hostages in Lebanon than there were before the whole thing had started. It's hard to say that it benefited anybody. Or, I mean, well, unless you count the Enterprise, which was now sitting on millions. There has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA. Overthrown by the CIA. Overthrown by the CIA. Overthrown by the CIA. Welcome back to The Crux. I'm Matt Pulver. Once again, please follow The Crux on Facebook. You can just search The Crux Podcast on Facebook. Uh, also visit thecruxpodcast.com. That's where you'll find a lot of additional information, uh, especially as these episodes start getting more complicated. I'm compiling and, and keeping updated uh, sort of a who's who of all the central characters involved. There are a lot of names that just keep coming at you. And so if it gets confusing, just hop over to thecruxpodcast.com. There's also a new weekly newsletter for supporters of The Crux. If you want to support The Crux, you can do that at patreon.com slash The Crux, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, there's so much information that I don't get to include in episodes. And so this newsletter is a really good way for me to be able to tell these really interesting stories that just don't make it into the episode for, for this reason or that. So if that's something that interests you, please consider supporting The Crux on Patreon. So in late 1985 and into 1986, these Iranian arms sales and, and contributions from the Saudis and, and others are building the enterprise's war chest back up. Richard Secord is now able to go out and work his magic to find the weapons. But being able to buy weapons and, and equipment for the Contras, that's only the first hurdle. Now you've got to get them down there. Like, you, you can't just drive them down there. I mean, the Boland Amendment is still in effect. Sending a, a single rifle, a single bullet, is illegal per the Boland Amendment. The U.S. can't arm the Contras. So you can't use the means that the government has for that, that you know, those kinds of shipments. Military cargo planes are a no-go, like off-rip. I mean, it's hard to sneak anywhere in a, in a big lumbering C-130. I mean, the jig would be up real quick if they went with, with military, you know, cargo planes or, or, or ships or trucks 
They have to sneak the stuff down there. And plus, there are now two fronts in the Contra War. You have the main group in the north fighting out of Honduras, and then in the south you have a smaller group fighting out of Costa Rica. And you have to resupply both. To give you an idea of, of what that means, we're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds of weapons, ammunition, and, and other gear a month, every month, to supply both the southern and the northern fronts. The Contras, like any army ever, is only as strong as their ability to maintain supply lines. And that's on North and his team. They have to maintain what Richard Secord called the sinews of war, or else the Contras are toast. And this is especially true for like the forward operations, like fighting down into Nicaragua and being able to stay there. That can't and doesn't happen without the ability to resupply the forward position. In fact, it's so hard for Contras to fight across the border and, and, and establish actual victories, like territory the Contras can, can actually hold in Nicaragua. It's so hard to do that that the CIA would arrange for American news crews to go down to Honduras, and then they'd lead the news crews into, quote, Nicaragua, but which was still just Honduras. The reporters didn't know. <laughs> they just point their cameras and say, oh, look, we're in, in Nicaragua. No, you ain't. Girl, you in Honduras. It is hard to supply the Contras. One of the Contra leaders complained in, in early 1986. He says, quote, you can't run an army when today you have bullets but no boots, and tomorrow you have boots but no uniforms. And so North and his men are finally getting the money after Congress's funds run out from Iran and, and everywhere else. But getting the materiel down to the Contras is not easy at all. Secord would worry, quote, you either had to develop an airdrop capability or they were going to be forced from the field. The Contras were going to be forced from the field if they couldn't start dropping in supplies. And so that's exactly what North was going to do in 1986. Establish something of an air resupply operation, airdrops, airdrops everywhere to the bases in Honduras, to the bases in Costa Rica, and to the forward positions inside Nicaragua. And this is where things get the most murky. Of, in all of this, in all of Iran-Contra, this is a dirty operation through and through, even in the way it just gets going. And, and this is how it gets going. So, so back in Washington, Reagan has been working on the legislative end. He's trying to get the Boland Amendment lifted. So, so just arming the Contras isn't illegal off rip. But beyond that, he needs then Congress to start giving him legal money again. And Congress refuses. But what he gets in lieu of that, starting in September of 1985, Congress breaks him off a little $27 million for non-lethal humanitarian aid to the Contras. And North is like, oh, word. Oh, so y'all going to be flying planes down to the Contras now for humanitarian aid? I'm going to stack them shits full of weapons. Which is exactly what he starts to do. So this thing is called the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office. The NHAO is known in official circles as the office. And it's a legitimate above the board humanitarian aid program for all of about 15 seconds. 
until North gets a hold of it. Now, Congress has mandated that the NHAO, this humanitarian aid program, can't be run out of the Defense Department or the CIA. Like, none of the folks with guns. It has to be run out of the State Department, which is like the the diplomatic wing of the U.S. government. And the State Department at that point is headed up by George Shultz. If you remember from the last episode, he's one of the ones kept out of the loop of, of all this super shady shit. And Schultz appoints this guy, Robert Dwimling, to head up the NHAO. Dwimling is an ambassador. He's a, he's a career diplomat with what is described as a, quote, spotless record. He's a good guy, it sounds like. But what Secretary Schultz doesn't know is that his assistant secretary of state in charge of Latin America, this guy, Elliot Abrams, is shady as fuck. I hope I get a chance to get into how much of a a, a real piece of shit Abrams is. See, because Abrams is at the same time in this group with North and a CIA guy, Alan Fears. Alan Fears is, is the Central American Task Force Chief for the CIA. And their group is called RIG, R-I-G, the Restricted Interagency Group. But Congress didn't know all of this. I'm not even sure if, if Secretary Schultz knew this. Congress was handing the $27 million in NHAO money to Secretary of State Schultz, one of the good guys, and Ambassador Dwimling, one of the good guys. And so it looks like the NHAO is going to be this squeaky clean project, a humanitarian project operating according to how Congress had legislated it. Nope. It's not. (laughs) North and his men infiltrate it with the quickness. They come in and just, like, ransack the place. They strong-arm Dwimling into putting their guys into key positions to turn it into a sort of humanitarian-by-day, weapons-by-night supply operation. They, they piggyback weapons, basically, onto the NHAO program. Alan Fears, the CIA guy that I just mentioned, he would eventually testify in court and confess that, quote, what was really happening was that North was hijacking the NHAO operation which is a good way of putting it. In case after case, planes loaded with legitimate humanitarian aid would fly from the U.S. to a transshipment point, like an airfield in Central America, and get loaded with weapons before flying back out for the airdrops in Contra territory. And here's the thing. That is not easy. It's not easy from like a a staffing perspective. Like, you can't just hire people off the street to go work for these sorts of projects. As things get further and further into this dark world, you need people who already know how that world already works. Like, you need people who can keep secrets, which means you need people who live in secrecy, in the shadows. So I'm going to try to explain just how murky, how dirty things get when North hijacks the NHAO. First thing he does is he moves the central facility of the NHAO to the Ilopongo Air Force Base in El Salvador. It's like just northwest of Nicaragua. El Salvador is hell on earth for a lot of people at this point because it's run by this right-wing military dictatorship that governs by death squad, essentially. Seriously, Google El Salvador during that period for an idea of how horrific this right-wing death squad regime was. 
But North had to run the most secret of secret operations. So he's not checking for your rap sheet of, of war crimes. In fact, what we'll see is that running this level of criminal enterprise means that you can only work in a world of, of war criminals, assassins, narco traffickers, and, and terrorists. Like, that's the world you're now in. You can't find employees just off the shelf for these sorts of operations. Case in point. To get access to that Air Force base at Ilopongo in El Salvador, North hits up this guy Felix Rodriguez, codename Max Gomez, who was already in good with the Salvadorans at Ilopongo. Rodriguez was a Cuban, Cuban-American, CIA. He'd been part of the Bay of Pigs invasion, and he was a killer. Famously, or infamously, Felix Rodriguez was the man recruited by the CIA to kill Che Guevara. Rodriguez formed a team of Bolivian special ops guys to hunt down Che, who was then in Bolivia. But Rodriguez's group was funded, trained, directed by the CIA and U.S. Special Forces, according to documents that have now been declassified. The U.S. wanted Che to be captured and interrogated in Panama, but Rodriguez's men decided to execute Che in the field shooting him in the legs and then in the stomach to make it look like they'd killed him in battle and that it wasn't just cold-blooded execution. Rodriguez took Che's watch, which he still owns and, and proudly shows off. In the last photo of Che alive, taken just minutes before he was executed in the jungle, shows Rodriguez posing to Che's right, sort of holding his prize. And Felix Rodriguez is North's ticket into Ilopongo. So he sends Rodriguez a letter that begins in all caps, telling him to destroy the letter after reading. First thing it says, in all caps. But oops, the letter survived and is now declassified. And it goes on to explain that Rodriguez is the only guy to establish the Contra Air resupply effort out of Ilopongo. And Rodriguez agrees. So Felix Rodriguez, codenamed Max Gomez, becomes the manager of the Ilopongo resupply effort. But his deputy is way worse than he is. Way, way worse than he is. His deputy is another Cuban-American CIA guy, Luis Posada Carriles. Luis Posada was a straight-up terrorist. He admitted to a string of hotel bombings in Cuba. And now declassified documents from both the FBI and the CIA point to his being the mastermind in a 1976 bombing of a Cuban airliner. Killed everybody on board. Just blew it out of the sky. It was this bombing for which Posada was in prison in Venezuela when he escaped in 1985 and immediately makes a beeline for El Salvador to begin managing the resupply effort at Ilopongo with Rodriguez. So already we're seeing just how far into a dark, dark world North is having to go to hijack the NHAO to run guns to the Contras. At this point, I mean, think about this. At this point, they're selling weapons to terrorists in Iran to get weapons to terrorists in El Salvador to arm what is at times a terrorist army, the Contras. All because the Nicaraguan Revolution had overthrown Washington's man, Somoza. 
all because they'd pursued socialism to try to correct those just insane levels of inequality under those decades of Washington's guy, Somoza. But that was unacceptable to Reagan. And Reagan continues to make it clear to his guys that almost anything is acceptable to keep the Contras together during the drought in congressional funds, during the Boland Amendment. Terrorists? Fine. Hey, do what you got to do. Criminals? Ah, sure. Narco-traffickers? Cocaine cartels? Yeah, they're fine too. Do whatever you got to do. Enter Manuel Noriega. Noriega, the real Noriega. Military dictator of Panama and prominent member of Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel. Two front page stories in the New York Times in June of 1986, they drop just out of nowhere. And they reveal Noriega's ties to the Medellin cartel and the fact that he'd been a CIA asset for years. The articles by investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, they do not play around. The biggest paper in America, on its front page and in the first sentence of the article, revealed that Noriega was, quote, extensively involved in illicit money laundering and drug activities. Then there's a whole nother front page article continuing those revelations. And then, a week later, the Times runs a story about Noriega ordering the horrific torture and beheading of an opposition leader, Dr. Spadafora. Dr. Spadafora was about to go public with Noriega's drug trafficking the previous year, 1985, and Noriega orders him murdered. And this, this torture and murder, it makes ISIS killings look like gentle. This is really disgusting, but I, I, have, to, I have to tell you. So Dr. Spadafora, I mean, something is rammed into his rectum, tearing it apart. His testicles are squeezed for a prolonged period, like mangling them. His ribs are broken. His muscles are sliced up. And then he's finally decapitated while he's still alive. And they never find his head. All because he was going to reveal Noriega's drug trafficking. But now the New York Times has revealed that to the whole world. And Noriega is in serious trouble. So what does he do? He gets in touch with his man, Oliver North, and says, hey, let's make a deal. The deal he wants, he says, hey, Ollie, help clean up my image, and in return, I'll help attack the Sandinistas. And North says, hey, good idea. Let's meet. Let's hash that out. He doesn't say, you're a fucking monster. Don't call me. He says, hey, thanks for reaching out, guy. Let's do that. So they meet in London, North and Noriega. And Noriega's first pitch is, hey, how about I assassinate the entire Sandinista leadership? <laughs> Which is insane. And luckily, North agrees. Maybe a little surprisingly, North turns this offer down. He says that Washington can't get their hands dirty with that. But Noriega offers to do some other attacks, bombings and, and sabotage. North had already helped out Reagan the previous year with a bombing in Nicaragua, and he assures North that his assets inside Nicaragua could do much of the same. We can bomb a bunch of stuff for you. North and Noriega agree, and in North's notes, we see that he schedules a meeting the next week with the head of the DEA. 
just after that meeting with Noriega. That's one way to clean up his image. Talk to the head of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So in North's notes, we see that the next week, he was going to meet with the head of the DEA, followed by, next to this in his notes, written right there next to the appointment, it says, quote, Noriega, comma, how to clean up act. Which suggests that he's going to meet with the head of the DEA and get him to clean up Noriega's record in return for attacks on Sandinistas, bombings inside Nicaragua. But Reagan and North never got to enjoy Noriega's services because shortly after that London meeting, an NHAO cargo plane carrying weapons out of Ilopongo to the southern front is shot out of the sky by a Sandinista soldier. It kills two U.S. crewmen and a Contra fighter. But kind of miraculously, one of the Americans has a parachute and he survives. This guy, Eugene Hassenfuss. So the Nicaraguans take Hassenfuss into custody and they search the wreckage of this plane. They find 50,000 rounds of ammunition. They find rifles, grenades. This is fully laden with weapons. And unfortunately for North and Reagan and and everybody involved, the crew members aren't flying what they call clean. They're all carrying identifying paraphernalia, cards and stuff like this. So Hassenfuss is carrying an ID card issued at Ilopongo with the status of American, quote, advisor at the base. One of the dead crew members was carrying an NHAO business card, strike two. The deceased pilot was carrying an ID from Southern Air Transport, which, if you remember, it's one of the former uh, CIA proprietaries. It's the same airline used a lot in the, in the missile sales to Iran. And then Hassenfuss, the survivor, starts talking. And the whole thing starts getting pieced together. My name is Gene Hassenfuss. I come from uh, Marinette, Wisconsin. Yes, and I was uh, captured yesterday. Fui capturada ayer. In southern uh, Nicaragua. In the sur de Nicaragua. And there were two Cuban y dos, uh, nationalized Americans that uh, worked for the CIA that did most of the coordination of these flights. He's referring there, of course, to our good friends Felix Rodriguez and Luis Posada. Overseen all of our housing projects, transportation products, also refueling and some flight plans. And from Reagan all the way down, they go into denial and cover-up mode. Back at Ilopongo, Felix Rodriguez is scrambling. And this is really weird. He makes his first call to Vice President Bush, which strikes me as more than a little weird, right? He doesn't go to North, doesn't go to Secord, or even William Casey at CIA. He goes straight to the vice president. As if he'd been reporting to Bush all along. Bush, former head of the CIA. Bush, former head of the CIA, when Rodriguez was a prominent CIA agent. It's really strange. Now, at this time, when the, when the Hassenfuss plane is shot down... North is in Frankfurt, Germany. He's in another, yet another meeting with Iranians about missiles and hostages. But he gets the news and he immediately races to Washington. And once back in Washington, they race to start covering up the operation at Ilopongo. 
like like literally cover it up. North describes it in his memoirs. He writes, quote, First, they had the little Air Force flown to a remote airfield. Then an enormous crater was dug with bulldozers. The planes were pushed into the pit, covered with explosives, and blown up. The remaining wreckage was saturated with fuel and then cremated. The fire burned for days. When the smoke finally cleared, the charred remains were buried. Then North jokes darkly, one might call it the ultimate cover-up. Reagan's White House is in full denial mode. In his memoirs, North would later describe the, quote, great plague of amnesia that swept over everybody, the CIA, Department of Defense, State Department. A great plague of sudden amnesia about what this plane could have been about. Reagan is asked by a reporter about the resupply operation revealed by the plane, like who they were working for. And Reagan says, not us. CIA Director Casey tells North to, quote, shut it down and clean it up. And North begins shredding all documents relating to the diversion, that diversion of Iranian arms profits to the enterprise and the Contras. Things are not good. And things are about to get much worse. Because just a month later, on November 3rd, news of the Iranian arms sales finally breaks in a Lebanese paper sending shockwaves through Washington once again in less than a month. It is double-time denial now for the White House. Everyone is scrambling. And on November 13th, they send Reagan in front of the American people in one of those, you know, those presidential addresses that airs like on every channel during prime time. And Reagan delivers a remarkable series of lies prepared by North, Poindexter, and McFarland. Good evening. I know you've been reading, seeing, and hearing a lot of stories the past several days attributed to Danish sailors, unnamed observers at Italian ports and Spanish harbors, and especially unnamed government officials of my administration. Well, now you're going to hear the facts from a White House source, and you know my name. So let's get to the facts. A charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon that the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. To summarize, our government has a firm policy not to capitulate to terrorist demands, that no concessions policy remains in force. In spite of the wildly speculative and false stories about arms for hostages and alleged ransom payments, we did not, repeat, did not trade weapons, or anything else for hostages, nor will we. Now, he's, of course, lying about the arms for hostages there, but he doesn't even mention anything about a diversion of profits for the Contras, because that isn't known yet. That shoe has yet to drop. That thing that connects those two revelations over the past month, the Hassan Fuss plane shoot down and now the Iranian arms sales, those bombshells over the past month haven't yet been connected. And North has been busy shredding the documents that point to that connection. But a week after that televised address by the president, Attorney General sends two of his guys to North's office. This is November 22nd. It's a Saturday morning. And he sends them there to to look at, at documents in North's office. Now, it's worth noting that others in the Justice Department, namely the head of the criminal division, Bill Weld, 
were suspicious at Meese not sending the FBI or like proper investigators. He just sent his own trusted deputies to do this. But they go to North's office and, and, and take a look at his documents. But of course, you know, they're not finding anything, right? Because North has been very busy selectively shredding anything to do with the diversion. But then they find this single manila folder with WH written in red ink. White House, maybe? And inside this folder, they find a memo titled Release of American Hostages in Beirut. And there on the last page, they read this. Quote, the residual funds from this transaction are allocated as follows. $12 million will be used to purchase critically needed supplies for the Nicaraguan Democratic Resistance Forces. End quote. A.K.A. the Contras. Somehow North had missed this final document in his shredding. It might as well be a smoking gun. So the next afternoon, Attorney General Meese and his deputies meet with North at the Justice Department. And according to notes from one of Meese's men who was there, the Attorney General brings up the diversion memo, sort of out of nowhere. And North was, quote, visibly surprised. You could see him sort of recline back in the chair, end quote. At that moment, when North sort of slumps back in his chair, At that moment, you realize he is probably the only man in Washington who knew just how much shit was in the fan. And he just sort of falls back into his chair. But he gets right back up because that night, that Sunday night, was the infamous shredding party. North returned to his office in the building next to the White House late that night, close to midnight. And until almost dawn, shredded documents like a madman. His secretary, Fawn Hall, who who would briefly become famous during the congressional hearings, she's helping North shred. And when she isn't shredding, she's altering documents that couldn't be shredded. But the next morning, as Reagan is preparing to face the press corps to try to get out ahead of this story, the secretary, Fawn Hall, she realizes she'd left a few of these crucial documents behind. They're sitting there in North's office. So she darts to the office building before the investigators arrive and seal it off. I mean, it's effectively a crime scene at this point. And she snatches the the documents in a rush and, and, and not knowing what to do, she stuffs them into her bra and her boots and walks calmly past the guards.